Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world, beloved Salonista. I'm Damien Barr, and you're listening to the podcast of my live literary salon. Now, we were supposed to be having this salon at the Savoy in person with all of you, but, well, dot, dot, dot. So we're having this salon digitally. It's our first ever online salon and all three of our guests appeared on Facebook Live. They are John Niven, Peep Fides and Polly Sampson. So you're going to hear me introduce them. And in each case, they're going to be reading and taking questions that have been messaged to them and also some of the questions that I've sent to them. So uh, you can check all their questions and their answers because they type loads as well on the Facebook page. John Niven's new satire is set in a near-future America that's so horribly real it veers dangerously close to non-fiction. This America has almost survived two terms of the Donald and is now in the first term of Ivanka. Frank Brill, a small-town newspaper editor in a post-print world, lives in this world of Trumpian horror where the economy has collapsed and morality has gone with it. Then Frank is given a terminal diagnosis. So what does he do? Does he give in, roll over and die? No, he compiles a fuck it list. Because Frank has had to endure more than his fair share of misfortune and he has all the names of those who are to blame for all of the tragedies that have befallen him. And now he's got nothing to lose. Or does he? Here is the brilliant John Niven making his salon debut with the world premiere of his disgustingly funny new novel, the fuck it list. Um, this is the first time I've in a bunch of media interviews this week that I've been able to actually say the title. Uh, I, f- I finally reached peak me in that I wrote a book that whose name cannot actually be spoken in polite society. Um, so uh, the, the, the title of the fuck it list was obviously a play on the bucket list the notion of a bucket list. I have a very old dear friend, Alan Crothers in Ayrshire, where I grew up, uh, who um, who I don't see as often as I would like. But um, about 10 years ago, we were on the pub. Um, we had just started to reach that age where you'd start to hear of people getting cancer. And Alan had said about um, some friend of ours who had cancer, and he, he said, um, well, you know what you'd do, John, if you got that diagnosis? Um, and we all went, well, you know, I don't know, uh, you go and swim with the dolphins, you do whatever. And he said, no, 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 no. Yeah, um, you know, you, you've got a list of the five or six cunts that have really fucked you over in your life. And you, you turn up at the door and you ring, you know, you ring the bell, you've got, sh- you got a fucking shotgun joke. And you ring the bell, ding, ding, and they open the door and they see you and they, they know why you're there. Give a second, they fucking know. And then, yeah, blow them away. And I thought this was hilarious that someone's reaction to a cancer diagnosis would be to go on a killing spree. So that that idea, and I think a lot of novelists would tell you this, that um, sometimes it's a tiny little idea that lodges somewhere and you think, I might eventually be able to to use that for a book. Um, What happens then is you have to sort of cross-pollinate it with a couple of other ideas. And I, I kind of, in the last three years, became obsessed with the notion of what would America look like a decade from now if Trump kept going. So that idea of Trump's America after a decade of him being in power, 
and uh, a guy who got cancer and decided to even the score we became the, the, the notion of the book um the the problem with writing satire if you will uh, in this day and age is you kind of feel a guy making penny farthings once the motor car's been invented it, reality is outstripping your imagination at such a rate so there were things that I wrote in the outline for the novel, or things in the first draft of the novel, where I suddenly thought, oh my God, I haven't gone anything like as far as I need to go here. So it was a constant revising process. Um, but at the heart of the book, you have this guy, and I'm going to read you, I might read two short extracts. Um, you have this guy who's lost all his family through various tragic events that you come to understand as the book goes on. And he um, he lives alone, and his only companion is Alexa, the the well-known popular speaker device. And he uh, he's kind of he already he always suspects when the, the piece of the extract I'm going to read you now, he's kind of suspected that he has cancer for a while. This is water, by the way. I did two pictures of um, whiskey sarah's waiting for this thing to start, so. I'm going to have to, we're laying off for all kids. Um, so he, uh, Frank, Frank Brill, the character in the book, um, is diagnosed with having cancer and decides he's going to get even with some people. And three or four of them are, there's personal reasons for it. And a couple of them are more political reasons, but they dovetail together. Um, and as I say, he lives alone. His only relationship is with his computer. So we're in America in 2026 and Frank's come home from the doctor's office having received the diagnosis. Frank came in through his front door, tossed his keys in the hall table and shouted out, I'm home Alexa. Oh, I have to apologise in advance for my terrible American accent that you're going to hear a couple of times in this reading. Um, Whenever I do the voice of Alexa, it sounds kind of like the computer from um, 2001. So there's no way around that. We're all just going to have to live with it. Hello, Frank, she said. How was your day? I have cancer, Frank said, taking his coat off. I'm sorry. I don't understand that, Frank. Yeah, me neither. Lights? Alexa turned the lights on. She'd been a present, Alexa, from his daughter. Frank felt like, what exactly? He felt like celebrating. Maybe he'd go out to eat later. He poured himself a Coke over ice and wandered across the hallway, where he stood in the doorway to the dining room, drumming his fingers on the doorway and looking at the pile of files on his table, the inert PC, the plates and mugs and yellow legal pads. Sipping his drink, turning the computer on, Frank settled uncomfortably into a hardwood dining chair. He felt like he should have a toast to it, to the cancer, all up in his asshole. It figured Frank had given his typical American ass a typically hard time all its life. Red meat, chilies, jalapenos, fried chicken, pizzas, nicotine, all washed down with an Atlantic of liquor. But he bore it no grudges. Decades of this, and you'd throw in the towel too, wouldn't you? You'd say, fuck me, fuck you. You deal with this shit, buddy. I'm out of here. Alexa, Frank called over his shoulder, 
CNN. He heard the set come to life behind him and turned to see the parade in Washington, already in full flow. Huge crowds were packed into the bleachers, waving their flags, cheering in their red MAGA and CAGA hats as they watched the soldiers and hardway rumble past. Tanks, howitzers, assault vehicles, rocket launchers, thousands of troops all lumbering away from the White House towards the capital. The lead tanks were huge, A1 Embraham's battle tanks, each weighing 60 short tons. Soldiers stood up through the open hatches, rigidly saluting the podium. You could faintly hear the cheers in the background, USA, 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 as the camera swung over the rows of spectators. And here it was, the real America. The people who had travelled from Florida, from Nebraska, from Kentucky, and yes, from here, from Indiana, all the way up to Washington, spending money they could ill afford to pay their respects on Veterans Day. They were cold and wet and mostly old and fat, and they were all wrapped in thin, cheap coats with their cardboard signs saying, God bless the Trumps, death to Democrats, and of course, lock her up. This last one increasingly puzzled Frank, as former Senator Clinton had died peacefully in her sleep three years ago. Perhaps they feared a ghost situation, a zombie Hillary, clawing her way out of the grave and trying to take their guns and frantically delete more emails. There had been no tanks in the parade for the first few years. The roads couldn't handle it. One of Trump's first acts early in his second term had been to order a multi-billion dollar program to widen and strengthen Pennsylvania Avenue to accommodate the monster tanks every November. As Frank remembered this, as if on cue, the cameras cut to the presidential podium. President Trump and her husband, Greg, her second husband, Jared, were still languishing on Rikers Island, having taken the fall for an awful lot of shit. Vice President Hannity and his wife on her left, and on her right, still towering over the others, even at 80, Donald, and his new wife, his fourth wife, Crystal her belly already swollen in the final trimester of her pregnancy. Thunder erupted suddenly as three fighter planes smashed through the sky above the parade. Trump put a protective hand on Ivanka's shoulder as he shouted into her ear over the jet roar, his finger jabbing into the sky. Ivanka wore a cream overcoat and fur hat. Her father has trademarked black overcoat and red tie. Trump looked down at the vast cheering crowd and gave them his signature thumbs up. They went wild. It had been a masterstroke, you had to admit, firing Pence halfway through his second term and nominating Ivanka as VP before resigning the office due to ill health. Ivanka automatically became president and had 18 months to serve before she had to fight an election. Obviously, one of her first acts in office had been to pardon her father of the multitude of charges he faced. And you wonder, the CNN commentator sighed as the coverage switched to a shot of aircraft thundering off into the distance over the capital. Can we afford to have all these fires and tanks here given the current situation in Iran and North Korea? The aftermath of the wars still gone on, years after Trump had stood in the tarmac in Tehran and Saul and given his victory speeches. The oil was already flowing from Iran. 
What the American people were going to get out of the post-nuclear moonscape of North Korea remained less clear. Alexa, Fox, Frank said. The channel changed. The shot of the jet fighters was pretty much the same, but the commentary went up a gear of three. Oh, wow, the female reporter was shouting over the noise. You guys should be here. That was incredible. The new F-16s, Roberta, the studio anchor said. That's right, Ken, the most advanced plane in the sky. The cameras cut back to the Trumps, applauding on the podium. And there's Crystal, Roberta said, looking absolutely radiant, I have to say. The former president's new wife of just over a year was saying something in Donald's ear. She was 28, Frank knew, just a few years older than Olivia would have been now. Don't they make a beautiful couple, Roberta went on. The Donald, everyone agreed, had done an incredible job of getting over his grief following the death of Melania, who had perished in a helicopter crash just a few months after he left office. Just after, rumour had it, she had signed A, divorce papers, and B, an eight-figure book contract. And Roberta, I think Crystal's wearing one of the president's own designs, isn't she? That's right, Ken, it's a pantsuit. They're available on the White House website, as a matter of fact. If you go to Alexa, turn the fucking thing off, Frank said. I'm sorry, I don't understand. TV, off. The screen went black and the room was quiet again. The clock in the mantelpiece told Frank it was nearly 5pm. The street outside darkening swiftly as night fell. He should really try and eat something. He still had to pack. Alexa, Frank said, thoughtful, expansive, philosophical even, as he swirled the coke in his glass. Yes, Frank? Why does God hate me? I'm sorry, Frank. I don't understand the question. So this is Frank as we meet him in the book, um, before he sort of sets off on the course of action that's going to get a little crazy later in the book. Um, and we'll look at some questions now. Uh, someone's in bookshelves oh yeah um, I had this the other night like most of us I'm living half my life in um, Skype meetings and somebody said the other night are they all your books on the shelves behind you well they, they kind of are yes in fact they totally are but um, that I don't know if that's unusual if you're a novelist and you get, you get all the different you know we've got German, Norwegian all the various translations I think the reason some novelists keep all the copies of their own books in their study is uh, it's so hard to write a novel. And every time you do it, it's like a high-wire act without a safety net. No matter that you've... This is my 10th novel, and every single time out, it's uh, it's terrifying. You're never sure you're going to get there. So I think in a sort of superstitious way... Having your own books behind you is a way of sort of saying, I've done this before. It's, I, I promise you, it's not just a mad, egocentrical wasteland that I, I can't. I don't, and I've never read one of my own books after it's been published. I don't sit here looking at this wall going, oh my God, I'm the king. It's just a kind of way of, you kind of say, I've, we've got through this hell before, so we can do it again. How much do your lawyers charge per hour to proofread? We have had some very fun uh, 
uh, proofreadings of the of novels over the years. My favourite was um, when uh, Kill Your Friends was getting published, and uh, the lawyers had a we got a legal read on it, and it came back with all these points. And we sat in this meeting where the lawyer said, um, "Well, I have an objection to page eighty-seven, where uh, uh, Oasis are described as a bunch of Mancunian car thieves." Um, to my knowledge, Oasis have never been arrested or prosecuted for auto theft, so I thought, well, that's a bit odd. And he went on, the next objection was, on page, whatever, um, all saints are described as a bunch of record industry prostitutes. To my knowledge, all saints have never been prosecuted for prostitution or nothing. And then there's another one, I think, again, do all these things kind of basically, you remember at the time, one of the Appleton sisters was married to, to Liam Gallagher. Anyway, all these kind of eventually tied back to Oasis. And I said to my editor, I'm like, these are all kind of Oasis related. And he went, oh yeah, the, the lawyer, he's no Gallagher's lawyer. I'm like, all right, okay. That's all. Why are we putting our eggs in that basket? <coughs> we hired Robbie Williams' lawyer, there, there might be some other, or Jerry Halliwell came off fairly badly in that novel. So, you know, um, don't always put your stock in the lawyers, kids. I should refer back to Damien's questions. Uh, he said that Frank, yeah, Frank is a sort of anti-hero in the book. Um, but Frank, the character in the book, he's the kind of guy, a, a really boring way to write this novel would have been to have a sort of liberal, you know, a real liberal hero as the, the centrepiece of it. And he isn't that guy at all. He's kind of a very ordinary American who's played by the rules all his life and kind of done the right thing. Um, and the, it's difficult to say without a plot. I'll give this away. It's not a huge spoiler of the plot, but what you discover at the end of the book uh, is that Frank voted for Trump the first time in 2016, book set in 2026. So he was one of those people who thought, like a lot of Americans did, I think, in 2016, let's shake the tree. Let's, you know, the status quo, whatever it is, isn't working for us. Let's give it a bit of a, let's, you know, give it a bit of a kick. And Frank realises much too late that that was a really bad idea, as I think, you know, uh, a lot of Americans will be realising right about now. Um, when you face a massive crisis, it's not ideal to have an absolute brain-dead dog-fucking rapist dealing with your response, you know? Um, in a perfect world, and in a perfect world, Trump would have a massive coronary tomorrow, but they're stuck with that. Enough of them voted for it to sort of give them it. And um, Frank's guilt and anger that drives him, um, a huge part of that is the fact that he enabled this, you know. Uh, there's a great quote of Robert Conquests from the 50s talking about when communism was kind of at its peak and you'd have students in all sort of democracies in the world who were fans of Stalin in the sort of, you know, maybe the late 30s, the early 40s, who it was only decades later once the realities of Stalinism emerged that you'd realise that in a tiny way, a tiny, tiny infinitesimal way, you'd sort of enabled that regime. I think in that way there'll be a lot of America's Americans waking up over the next sort of half decade or so and realising, oh my God, I enabled 
I enabled this in a tiny way. I kind of thought, well, you know, Obama's fucked us. Let's um, let's shake the tree, and uh, here's the results. You know, let's just look at the question. Ask me about translating my rugged swears into other languages. Uh, that's actually quite tricky. I um, I often get emails from foreign translators. Um sort of begging for how you put certain expressions into um, German or Norwegian or Dutch or what have you. Um, yeah, Those guys are on their own. I can't help them. I have enough trouble swearing in my own language. Okay, the demon's asking me, um, this is satire but also big-hearted and generous like you. Oh, demon. How do you manage to lo write love into a film with satire? Uh, it was important that Frank kind of, the main character, had a backstory that um, he, again, I'm trying not to give too many spoils away, but the, he's lost almost all of his family through various tragedies. Um, and they, most of them tie back to the way America has gone in the, in the, in the decade from now till 2026. And what, one of the hardest things to write in a way, actually, is the near future. Um, because you you can't, you know, you're not going to have Daleks running about and people in cyber suits and jetpacks and stuff. Uh, it's only a few years in the future. You kind of have to make an incremental jump. And uh, people, in the same way that people don't see their hair growing a bit longer day by day, they... They don't really see where they're getting to politically. I think, like I said a minute ago, nobody kind of knew that you'd end up with somebody absolutely hell-bent on killing a minimum of 200,000 of their own citizens and, that, and, and qualifying that as a result. So, <laughs> again, and, and several people are asking this. Have I ever pooed in a bagger cup? I think we all know the answer to that is, uh, is yes. I'm not going to specify bagger cup, but it's, you know, uh, yeah, that's a thing. Oh, someone is asking, I've famously been blocked on Twitter by Donald Trump. Uh, we'll get back quite a way here, actually. Uh, this might be quite a good way to round things off. Um, my kind of obsession, my obsession with Trump, not that Trump's the main part of this novel, he's, he's not in it very much, Uh when all, goes all the way back to about, well, I, I guess when I read American Psycho by British Nellis when I was still at university, um, Trump is a kind of background presence in that book, just as a figure of absolute ego and mania. Um, so I kind of knew who Donald Trump was from the early 90s, but I, I became more obsessed with him once I joined Twitter in 2011. Um, and I kind of, for some reason, started following Donald Trump's account on Twitter. And I became to, I came to realise that he was obsessed with Obama. He constantly tweeted about Obama. He was, you know, deranged with praying that Obama lost the election in 2012. And, he, and Trump was convinced Obama was going to do so. And then when Obama actually won his second term, I, I followed Trump at the time, and on the on the night of Obama's victory, Trump tweeted saying the words "Bah, back to the drawing board," 
And I tweeted Trump and said, Jesus Christ, you sound like a really shit Scooby-Doo villain. And Trump blocked me. He was obviously in such a fury. This is like 2012. This is like, you know, three years before he announced his run for the presidency. But he was obviously in such a foul mood that night that any kind of terrible liberal mocking him was getting blocked. So that kind of increased my um, obsession. And so from then, I was just kind of fascinated. I spent quite a lot of time in LA with my other life, apart from writing novels as a screenwriter. And I'd be there and I'd say to people, do you think Trump's going to, is he going to run? And people would say, oh, no, there's no, no, he's just, you know, he's making a lot of noise to enhance his brand. And then he announced he was running and I'd say, um, do you think, you know, is, could he win the Republican nomination? And people would laugh, like tears running down the face. They'd say, no, don't be, don't be crazy. There's absolutely no chance. And then he won the nomination. And you'd say, can, do you think, he, could he win the, could he do it? Could he win the presidency? And they'd say, are you, are you mad? Are you crazy? No chance. And so sure enough, by the time he won the presidency, I'd already put put a fairly chunky bet on him to do so. And uh, I was actually in Los Angeles on election night 2016. And uh, I rang my partner Charlotte to say, can we put some more cash on Trump winning? Because um, I really think it's going to happen. And she went into a bookshop to try and do so. A bookshop? <laughs> yeah, we, we put bets on the... That's the dark side of Buckinghamshire. She went into a betting shop to try and do this. And uh, the girl behind the counter said, uh, oh, you like Trump, do you? And she said, no, not really. And she went, oh, I like him. I think he's good. You know, he speaks his mind. And at that point, I thought, oh, my God, this is a lock. If some moron in a betting shop in England is, you know, I think he's a good bloke, he's going to sweep it. And sh sure enough, so it proved. So we, we won a bunch of money there, I'm sorry to say. And obviously I gave most of it to charity to um, in America to try and combat the terrible things Trump was going to do. Uh, but we also rolled some of it over onto an impeachment bet. Um, and we won that too in January there when he got impeached. And a lot of people said to me, how did you know that you were going to win that? And I said, well, you know, criminal's going to crime. You put a criminal in that position, he cannot help but crime. So... Um, it's, the Trump presidency has been um, emotionally draining for me, spiritually voiding, but um, and creatively and financially so far, not 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 too bad. So um, I hope you enjoy the the book whose name cannot be spoken. And uh, thank you so much for it. I, I've wanted I've wanted to do Let Salon for years, and it hasn't quite happened. And. Uh, I um, I can't believe that when I finally get to do it, I've brought a virus virus down the planet, and I'm I'm stuck in my office, and you know we can't be in the Savoy, getting plastered on high quality cocktails. But there we are. Um, but thank you for listening, and thank you for having me, Damien. And thanks, guys. And if you enjoyed listening to that but would like to watch it, you can check our Facebook page and look at the videos and you can see me chatting with the guests and see the guests in their homes and see me in my home and just generally watch it all as well as listen. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, you can do that via our website, which is www.theliterarysalon.co.uk. Thank you.